The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade, and my opinions on this podcast are my own. I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute that's mentioned on my podcast. For today's episode, I have a special guest with me, and we're going to be discussing one of the animals that this person doesn't necessarily study, but because they do have broad experience with African cats, and they... (laughs) They really love this cat in particular. Uh, We decided that we wanted to focus on this because I really like to talk about animals that aren't as as discussed as they should be, in my opinion. So while they've done some really cool stuff on other podcasts with cheetahs and things like that, uh, when they said that they really liked servals, I decided, hey, a serval would be a really cool animal to do because while it's a relatively known cat. It's not a super well-known cat compared to things like cheetahs and lions and so on. But before I introduce this guest, I do want to hash out a few things real quick because we do go on a a couple of rants, and this is actually going to be an interesting breakup of episodes because this first half of the episode is going to be about the serval. And the second half is actually going to be a bit of a rant that we have about conservation as a whole. But because there are a few gaps in our discussion about the serval, I'm going to fill in a little bit of natural history here. And then after we have our discussion, I'm going to fill in a little bit extra information about their their conservation and some of the values that we usually discuss in episodes because it was a little all over the place, but that was fine. This is I really prefer to have natural conversations with the people who join me on my podcast versus uh, forcing talking points. So starting off in natural history and taxonomy, of course, we're in the kingdom Animalia. We're in phylum chordata, the chordates, vertebrates. Uh, We are in class mammalia, mammals. The order is carnivora, so carnivores. The family is felidae, so felines. And they actually did the species name, so I'm going to let them do that because they say it much better than I did. And they explained some of the etymology behind it, which was really exciting for me because I like discussing etymology. Now, we did discuss a little bit of their appearance and size, although I think only their weight was mentioned. They do, I think, from foot to the top of their head, uh, measure about 24 inches or 60 centimeters. So really not a tall cat when they're usually less than two feet. We did discuss their range and their habitat and their diet, <laughs> reproduction and I think we discussed lifespan too, so that might be all I need to mention for the natural history. So hopefully I didn't miss anything. (laughs) But let's go ahead and dive on into my discussion with my special guest. All right, so thank you so much to Gabby Fleury for joining me. Uh, Gabby is a conservation biologist who's actually spent time in country in Africa. So unlike me, who has 0% experience with all of these African animals outside of zoological facilities, uh, Gabby's actually had some experiences uh, with a variety of different wildlife. And you're going to be talking with me today about our special species this week, the serval. So why don't we go ahead and jump into a little bit of the natural history and kind of give people an idea of what a serval is. 
Yeah, so servals are my favorite cat species because they're very difficult to see. They're kind of like my white whale. I have never seen one in the wild. I've always wanted to see one. Um, they're very unusual cats. They're in the family uh, Philidae, um, along with a lot of the other small cats. And their name is Leptolaris uh, serval. And Leptolaris is actually from Greek, which means like delicate, um, like delicate cat. And then serval is actually a Portuguese word, which is another reason why I love them so much as my dad is Brazilian. Um, and it means deer like wolf. Um, so it's a very descriptive name. If you ever see a picture of a serval, you know, they're very elongated. Um, one of their nicknames is the cat of spare parts because they have <laughs> huge ears. <laughs> you have very tiny little delicate face and extremely long legs. And they actually have the longest legs in relation to their body of any cat species. Um, I always joke that they're America's next top model. They're very, <laughs> they're, they're beautiful animals, but they're kind of mm -hmm. odd looking. And they have um, a very short tail um, in comparison to their body length as well. And spots and some spots that sometimes group together that look a little bit like stripes. Very goofy looking animal, but fantastic. Um, and yeah, so they're actually not that big. The biggest serval ever recorded was about 40 pounds. Um, so maybe the size of like a medium-sized dog at biggest, but they're usually a lot smaller than that. Males are bigger than females. Um, and their range is, they're not very common in North Africa, but they're, you know, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa, so below the Sahel. Um, and yeah, and they're really habitat generalists. They prefer wetlands um, or kind of flooded areas, but they'll also live in savannas and some woodlands. The only places they are not found are true deserts and uh, tropical rainforests. So you're never gonna find one in a tropical rainforest. Um, and they eat basically anything that's small enough to fit in their mouths. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're very generalist. So they'll eat mostly, mostly rodents, um, but they'll also eat things like frogs and insects like grasshoppers. Um, and they are also great animals in terms of they're very solitary. So sometimes when I'm feeling contrary and I'm just like, I'm feeling very servile today. They're very, <laughs> they're very, yeah, they're solitary. Their closest relationship, like many cats, is between a mother and, and her, her uh, kittens. And they reproduce basically all year round. They don't really have a particular cycle um, in about two to three kittens per litter. And they really don't live all that long, but about the same as other cats, about 10 years in uh, the wild and up to 20 in captivity. And another cool thing about the serval, because I'm just going to be dropping all these serval facts, is, <laughs> is the fact that servals actually are one of the best hunters out of any cat species. They have about 50% hunting success rate, which doesn't sound mm -hmm. that impressive when you think of, but then you think of lions, which have many more of them. Um, to be able to hunt down their prey and they're only about 30% success rate. I tell a lot of people like with most predators like 10% is kind of like the median expectation if you don't right. know it's usually about 10% rate of successful captures if they're attempting it's not just that they only catch 10% of like the total available prey it's that they only catch 10% of what they attempt to actually catch it's actually yeah. not great for most predators so anybody who's above 10% is already like above average so 50% is extremely impressive and I do know who is it the black-footed cat is the one that beats that slightly more yeah I believe 63% but still it's it, like you said it doesn't sound like much when we think about it because you know we catch 100% of what we grow <laughs> but for predators I mean they miss a lot like prey are adapted to avoid and it's I didn't realize it was that high I was waiting when you said high I'm like okay so you're like 20 or 30 percent you dropped 50 I was like whoa 
Yeah, for sure. They're really great. And the cool thing about that is that they actually don't really scavenge much because they don't need to. Um, so unlike many other cat species, they don't even bother because they can catch their own food. Um, they want that fresh sashimi. They're a fancy cat. <laughs> they are a fancy cat. So that's kind of servals in a nutshell um, in terms of, you know, just kind of their basic natural history. That's that's amazing. That was a uh, wow. That's really <laughs> cool. I'm impressed. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me, too, because African cats really are very diverse in their skill sets. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure who has the most, but I feel like Africa probably has some of the best cat diversity on, of any continent. Because really in a lot of places, large cats and small cats usually don't exist and overlap as much. But in Africa, your cheetahs, your servals, your lions, your black-footed cats, like all these different species overlap so much. And yet they, the, the variation in them is incredible because mm-hmm. like here in the States, we get bobcats and we get mountain lions and they do, they, they used to overlap more, but still it's just like two cats, two whole cat species <laughs> on this entire North American continent. Right. You know, same with like South America, South America actually has more cat diversity than North America, but I still don't think it compares quite as much to Africa because they get the jaguars, yeah. the ocelots, the jaguarundis. Yeah, margays. Margays, thank you. Yeah. And, and, and uh, northern it? tiger cat, I think. There's yeah. a couple other in there. <laughs> yeah, and what is it? The uh, the cougars go down there too. They extend yeah. down there. So yeah, yeah. pretty good cat diversity, but still like Africa is pretty high up there. But the thing is, is like, like in South America, like there's two big cats. That's really kind of it. Everybody else is tiny to where in Africa, it's a, it's a pretty good mix of everybody. Like small, medium, large cats are yeah. in pretty good abundance in sub-Saharan Africa, mostly of course, because you know, what cat's going to try to live in the Sahara. <laughs> um, it's That's really impressive yeah. to hear because like of all the cats I expected to be like the most impressive cats. I have some bias towards cheetahs because we all know like cheetahs are really impressive with their speed and the way that they're adapted. Uh, so I'm sitting here thinking like in my list of like top cat to bottom cat, like cheetahs are kind of like up there. Then there's the black footed cats because they're so impressive with their prey killing skills. <laughs> and I'm not really sure where servals were on that list, but I feel like they've definitely been bumped up closer to the top. <laughs> they, yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. And um, another cool fact about servals is that when you look at kind of what cats they're most closely related to, they've done a genetic study and they're most closely related to the African caracal. Um, oh, kind of looks like ears. a yeah, with the little t- like little tufts on the its other ears. African model cat because that one is definitely <laughs> yeah. Vogue. <laughs> yeah, they for sure. Um, and then they're also closely related to the African golden cat, um, which kind of also is kind of a leggy, leggy looking thing. Um, so yeah, they're they're kind of they're called from the, like the caracal lineage is what they're most closely related to. So you know small to medium-sized cats. And that makes sense too, because while caracals don't share quite the same adaptations, obviously, they're not spotted and stuff. They're definitely a much more solid colored cat. Uh, for the most part though, I think hunting wise though, I mean, they have some pretty similar techniques as, as far as hunting goes. And let's get into that because I think that's, yeah. that's the thing that people hear the most. If you have heard about a serval, most often people peddle the hunting facts about the servals because it's pretty interesting, aside from their obviously very high success rate, why they're so successful is what's kind of cool about them. Yeah, so. they have a very characteristic way of hunting, um, which I'm sure most people have seen those videos of, of them jumping. They're famous jumpers. 
Um, they can jump, um, the typical height of their jumps is about 6.7 feet, um, but two to three meters is about as high as they can go. They can go you know, up to about three meters. Um, and they have amazing hearing. So as you can probably tell from, from the ears, uh, <laughs> very characteristic ears, um, they can actually swivel their ears 180 degrees separately from each other to pick up sound. Um, so you'll hear, you'll see them listening and then they'll be able to target something in grass and they jump on it, um, like a stiff legged jump to incapacitate the prey. And then they'll usually bite at the back of the neck, um, and eat it. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why they're so successful is so that they're able to almost, you know, target because their hearing is so advanced. Um, they're able to pinpoint exactly where something is. And then, and that's really impressive too, because if anybody's familiar with the, grasslands that cover most of uh sub-saharan africa because that's what it is a lot of it's like savannas there are some tropical rainforests like you mentioned and there's a few more arid spaces but mostly like what is it like maybe like 70 or 80 percent of sub-saharan africa is some form of savanna whether it's one with trees strictly grasslands something in the middle flooded grasslands all that stuff super common that grass is dense it can be really packed. The and idea tall, of being too. able to hear, yeah. yeah, it's tall, it's dense. If the wind's blowing, it's creating a lot of noise. Like the idea of something being able to pinpoint and jump through and capture something in that dense grass is even more impressive. And we're talking like maybe sometimes a grasshopper. Like, so it's pretty, oh, it's pretty cool. Um, and servals can actually go after larger prey up to like a diker, which is a very small antelope, but it's usually. Oh yes, yeah, they're so precious too. So I, most people are familiar with the the little kickicks because everybody's like, oh, it's the smallest antelope. But dikers are kind of like the runners up because they're equally like as small. Like we have a pair of blues at our zoo and they're about the same size as my house cats. They are very <laughs> tiny. So yeah, I mean, I can totally see that. But that still, that's impressive prey to take down because that's like maybe more than half the size of the serval. Like that's a pretty good yeah. sized animal. Yeah, cats, the servals are not, are not that big for sure. And another really cool adaptation that servals have is that, you know how they have spots? Mm -hmm. The spots actually, the density of the spots differ if they're in a wooded area or if they're in a more open area. So if they're in kind of a more wooded area, they actually have more densely packed spots. And if they're in kind of a more savanna, open grasslands area, the spots are more spread out to help with camouflage. So I, makes, I mean, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. And that's really cool. So, I mean, and, and I assume that they use these to identify populations too. So um, when they're doing like the studies and stuff and I know they're hard to track and you and I already discussed why they're hard to track. I imagine that a lot of the tracking is probably through things like camera traps. Mm -hmm. um, do they have sub, do you know if they have subspecies or is it for right now, is it just like uh, populations based on like habitat and region? I'm actually not sure about subspecies. I know that there's subpopulations because um, I know the Africa, the Northern African serval is I think distinct from sub-Saharan, um, but I have to get back to you on that. Uh, that's all good. Um, they also have color morphs, which is kind of cool. Um, so you get the melanistic circles sometimes. Yeah, I was gonna say, you say that. And as soon as you said color morphs, I was like, right. I remember like a few months back, somebody posted a really great picture of a melanistic one. I love that trait. I know it's not always good for them. Yeah. I know that <laughs> melanism purpose, is good but... for them, but it's still so cool to see it is really melanistic cool. cats. Yes. <laughs> uh, that, that's my thing. Cause my favorite cat, since we're talking about favorite cats, is Jags. 
And of course, uh, snacks are known for their melanism and they're the most commonly, yeah. like them and leopards are two of the most commonly, at least, I'm pretty sure in, in the case of zoological facilities, it's intentional with breeding because of course, if you breed a pair and somebody's melanistic, you're more likely to get more. But still, it's so cool because they're usually so well represented and people get to see that. And if it's a nocturnal cat, like it's not too big of a deal. But if you're a diurnal cat and your behaviors are diurnal, melanism's a little bit trickier because you know suddenly it's like, how do you camouflage in the dry grasslands of a savanna? You do solid black. <laughs> Suddenly your success rate might dip a little bit. <laughs> It'd be interesting. I mean, I'm, they're so, servals are so difficult to find and then melanistic morphs are so difficult to find on top of that. Like, I don't think anyone's ever done a study on their hunting success, but that would be really fascinating to be able to see at least with like, you know, one or two data points um, anecdotally if there was a huge difference. Um, the tricky thing of servals is actually that they are more diurnal than many cats. Um, they're active at night, but they're also active really early in the morning and in the late afternoon when it's less hot. So it'd be interesting to see how that impacts their hunting efficacy. Um, and you know, it's fascinating too, because you would think that, you know, given the adaptations of cheetahs, that they would actually also be really uh, nocturnal more so than they actually are because their running causes them to overheat so badly. It's, it would always seem like the worst time of the day to go hunting is like when it's actually the sun time and it's hot. And yet whenever we see any documentary about them ever, no, I mean, it makes sense. You can only really film most of the time in the day. Although the, what is it? A night on earth documentary was pretty cool. It is pretty cool. 99% <laughs> of documentaries are in the yeah. daytime. And so like in my head, I always told myself like all cats are nocturnal. It makes sense. Their, their hunting is so strenuous. It makes sense to be nocturnal because it's so hot. And then there's just cheetahs. We Ooh. know why cheetahs are diurnal, or why they think that's the case. I have no idea. I don't know that much about cheetahs if I'm being honest. We're, we're, we're kind of going over the cheetahs, but what's really cool about cheetahs is that, you know, they're kind of like the, the nerds, the jocks of a lot of the other bigger cats. And one of the, yeah, like they get their lunch money taken because the other cats beat them up and take their food, basically. Um, when they're exhausted and they can't move, you know, they all get their food taken away from them. Um, I love cheetahs, but I do have some design questions. Um, but basically with cheetahs, that's really cool is that um, one of the theories behind why they are more active in the daytime is actually it's like a temporal partitioning because the other cats are more active at night, the idea is trying to move towards more daytime activity um, helps mitigate some of that. That sucks so much with their adaptations. Yeah, oh, I love babies. them, uh, poor guys. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, they've got, they've got a long list of problems that we're not gonna open that can of worms because I've had a fascinating conversation when I used to volunteer at the Maryland Zoo because we have a pair of brother cheetahs there. Yeah. And people would of course say lots of things and speculate a lot. And I know like, you know, the, the bare minimum kind of adaptations, like why the females are solitary and why the males uh, team up and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm familiar with all that, but it was fascinating when somebody was talking to me about, um, what was it? He had brought something up about like, like the worship of cats in African cultures and things like that. And he's like, you know, they, we really wreck those cats by inbreeding them as pets. And I'm like, that's not, that's not what happened. She just inbreeding wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's like the wasn't because we kept them as pets. The inbreeding was because, I mean, stuff happens in nature, and sometimes 
you know, animals can rebound, but maybe not rebound very well. And unfortunately, the the cheetahs ran into a couple of issues and they rebounded. It's just they've got some roadblocks that are still kind of in the way from that rebound that they are. I mean, there's only so much that can be done, but um, but thankfully, servals are actually least concerned. So they're doing quite well. Yes. Which is impressive because that's predators that are least concerned, especially predators that overlap with human populations being least concerned is always impressive because predators are usually always hit the hardest with any kind of human wildlife conflict yeah servals Um, actually um i've seen a dead serval i've never seen a live serval so when i say i've seen one in the wild i've seen a dead one um and it's because they're often mistaken for other cats they actually don't go after livestock um, but because other cats go after livestock, sometimes they are killed because of human wildlife conflict mitigation. Although the biggest thing that affects servals is actually destruction of their habitat. So things like wetland destruction and things like that. My that question would have overlapped. The first, the first animal for this month was the saddle-billed stork. And that's basically the same thing is the saddle-billed stork doesn't really have direct conflict. Uh, there were some cases made for them eating the fish that some fishermen want, but it's really not enough to cause conflict. It's not right. like that bad. People don't have that kind of negative perception of them that they might have for other animals like a serval. Like in my mind, a serval would be an animal that's probably attacked more than a saddle-billed stork for conflict. But, you know, the biggest thing that really hurts these animals is habitat destruction. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm starting to see this come together because when we talked last week about the Setsi fly, when I was reading up a little bit about it after the episode, it discussed how it was able to expand its range because of some things that had happened um, because of human development and expansion and all these things. And when the Setsi fly came into these areas, it because of the sleeping sickness that it can carry it basically prevented people from being able to develop in those spaces and that's how you have some of the major parks that a lot of people know now today is because people can't safely inhabit these spaces because they're still trying to figure out how to properly mitigate the damage these animals do and a point we had made about that in the last episode is people have a lot of feelings in conservation Some of them are very valid feelings. Some of them are very harmful feelings. I was really disturbed to see a quote from somebody calling the Setsi fly the perfect game warden because of the harm it does to people in livestock and prevents development. And it's like, I get it. I get the feeling of, I'm grateful that some areas were able to be preserved and that biodiversity blossoms in these spaces. But in conservation, it shouldn't be nature's protected at the cost of human health and safety. It should be a balance as much as possible whenever possible between preserving nature and biodiversity and protecting people. So like when it comes to wildlife conflict with, of course, cats always get the worst reputation as, you know, livestock killers, whether it's them killing poultry or in the case of servals, I can imagine them being able to take down like young or very small goat because there's a few small goat breeds in Africa. I only know because we have them at my zoo. Um, They're so cryptic that there's basically almost none logged. It's really interesting when you talk to uh, farmers and you actually show them pictures um, because sometimes cats just kind of get like mixed together um, because there's, you know, obviously also language things as well. Um, It was really interesting speaking to a group of farmers in Namibia. I was doing a workshop 
and we were showing pictures of kind of, you know, cheetahs versus servals versus leopards. Because sometimes they would say it was a leopard and it was a cheetah, and sometimes they say it was a cheetah and a leopard, and that's like, you know, the whole language, language differences and things like that. But with serval is really interesting because when you showed the picture of the serval and you said, like, have you seen this animal? All of them were like, no. <laughs> like, we don't ever see this. So animal. cryptic. <laughs> so that's the whole thing is I least concern looks great, but I always have the little question mark of is it just data deficient and do we not really know what's going on with this animal? Yeah. And it really does get tricky because it's one of those things where, like, we all acknowledge a lot of the work that goes into IUCN ratings, but there are a lot of caveats that come with IUCN ratings. It's not always as black and white as it seems. There's a lot of nuances. And sometimes ratings are really old too. Like I saw one animal's rating. It's like, oh, it's at their least concerned. But the last like uh, review they had done it, of it was like 2008. I'm like, it's been over 10 years now. Are they still least concerned? I don't know <laughs> because I'm reading all these reports of all these issues this animal's having throughout its range. So you guys right. say least concern, but I'm looking at these, you know, points in their data that are pointing to them having some pretty steep declines. Yeah. And I don't know if they're currently researching the animal and its population or not, but it's one of those things where right. it's really easy to go least concern. All right. I'm not worried about this animal, but we don't want it to drop below least concern. So it still deserves to be researched and protected. Yeah. And also the least concern isn't necessarily the whole story of what's going on with the animal. So like you said, you know, we just think. because people don't see the servals and don't feel like they interact with them doesn't necessarily mean that nothing's going on either. They're I think of habitat destruction, they definitely are still at risk. Um, just oh, absolutely. For sure. And then <laughs> I, I love IUCN and, you know, you'll never hear me rag too much on them, but I do a little bit because I think I agree with you. And I think some of the, there's, there's two major things that go on, I think. And one of them is that, you know, even though say everything is up to date in terms of it's really good science, we know what's going on, global IUCN assessments. That doesn't really give us a full picture of what's going on because there's also regional assessments. So maybe they're doing great in a certain area, but that's where all their population is. And if something hits that population, then they're wiped out. So I think also country assessments are really important or regional assessments um, because something might be, for example, you know, maybe it's near threatened in one country and it's critically endangered in another. And it's important to kind of understand how all of that works, especially if their genetics might be different and things like that. So oh yeah. Cause that's another thing too, yeah. is like, like you said, like they have unique populations and they will have specific adaptations in certain habitats. And if you lose animals from certain habitats, they lose those adaptations. They may not be able to re you can't just re-release them into these habitats now and hope for the best. They right. had specific adaptations that had occurred in these regions for a reason. And we can't, and that's kind of the thing is I think that some of these notions are finally starting to catch up because you know, when you look at the history of conservation, especially when it comes to things like breeding programs and research and how we choose to protect certain areas and how we breed animals for release, it was a mess. And, so, and some of it wasn't people's fault. A really good, uh, a really good example is giraffes because yeah. giraffes were all considered one species, even though obviously from certain very patterns, they were very obviously not all the same. There's, yeah. there's a lot of hybrid giraffes in zoological facilities mm. and you know it's really hard to call them you know um what do we call them um, so they would like breed like a maasai giraffe with like reticulated and call it a day and not really know yeah and, and that's the thing is yeah. like at, at my zoo like a lot of people got excited when our our most recent cat was born um i'm blanking on her name right now her mom was juma 
and I'm blanking on her name. Either way, she's a hybrid. Her mom was a hybrid and it was, it was identifiable because she had some patchiness to her spots that kind of identified her mixed heritage. And it's the thing we can't call those safety net populations because if we introduced these kinds of giraffes back into the wild, we would just kind of mess up these populations now. And we have to completely rethink how we do giraffe conservation and safety net populations. And it would be the same thing with other animals. It's one of those things where before we just looked at them as a whole species and they weren't viewed based on habitat adaptations or potential subspecies because sometimes subspecies become actual species like they did in giraffes. And we have to think of those things because if we lose certain genetic groups, we may never be able to help them re-inhabit specific habitats in the future. And so, you know, that's kind of an important thing to consider. That's, you know, that idea, those notions are slowly catching up with all the work we've been doing. And it's like, whoops, we might need to rethink some of our conservation plans. We might need to rethink how we protect a habitat or how we do captive populations and releases and things like that, because. Yeah. No. <laughs> and the other thing is charisma. So that's Ooh, an important charisma. Point. No, I mean, this really is an important point because when you think about cats, cats are one of the most charismatic groups of animals on the planet. I mean, no argument there. I mean, that's how I got into conservation. I'm not even <laughs> Um, I'm very lucky to be able to work with them. But what's really interesting is even within cats, all the attention goes to the lions and the tigers and the snow leopards and small cats have not had the same kind of resources put into their studies. And some of it is just because they are very cryptic and it's hard to study them. But some of it is because they obviously get overlooked compared to their more, you know, I want to say like more norm core kind of cousin <laughs> so I mean, it, it, and it's a perfectly valid point that's something we yes. run into all the time and again this is I mean before the podcast you and I were discussing this where I specifically don't want to talk about the common African species as much because people are already such big fans if I tell somebody hey I'm gonna do a fundraiser for rhinos or lions or giraffes people are right. on top of it but if I say hey I'm gonna do a conservation fundraiser for a program that's protecting servals they're gonna be like what's a serval most people are going to ask me that what's a serval and it's like because I mean and don't get me wrong it's not people's responsibilities to know a hundred percent of all animals that exist on all continents Mm -hmm. I get that that's perfectly fine but the thing is is people do have this very strong connection to certain animals from certain places and it does leave a lot of others hanging And so I really do feel like there would be a much better shift instead of naming specific species, um, focusing on either groups or habitats. So if I said something like, hey, I'm doing a fundraiser for, you know, grassland savannas in Africa, there's a lot of species declining in this space. And there's a group that's working with species within these habitats to protect them. And that may include, and I could list some species, some may be well-known, some maybe not. But when people start looking at conservation more holistically and thinking- oh, right, I shouldn't just protect the lion. I should also protect things like the antelope they eat because guess what? If those antelope are endangered and they're declining steeply, the lions are going <laughs> to decline yeah. steeply. That's and a good point. Yeah, it's, it, and I think that's the thing is we, we have all these flagship species, pandas, tigers, lions, giraffes, jaguars, you know, all these big flagship species that represent so little <laughs> of the work that gets done 
I do understand some of the concepts like umbrella species where it's like they pour a lot of money into rhinos because rhinos have so many demands and in protecting things that meet the needs of rhinos, it meets the needs of many other species as well. Mm -hmm. I do understand that concept and why that helps spend money more efficiently, basically, is if you can pick out umbrella species who need, who have certain needs met, they're going to meet the needs of multiple species, then you do that. But I could argue that almost any species is like that. Any species that lives in a habitat and is either a generalist or needs a lot of space basically qualifies as an umbrella species, which is a lot of them. So, you know, that's why I'm not huge ongoing, you know, I want to do a fundraiser on rhino conservation. I want to fo- I want people to take that more holistic view and think not just of the rhino, but everybody else that's impacted either by the rhino's lack of presence or by, you know, the things that are going on in the habitat that just happen to include the rhino. So you save know. a servo by saving the wetlands for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's I actually work for, I work for a company called Rainforest Trust. And I'll just kind of talk a little bit about that because it ties exactly into that. Um, oh, this is so, perfect. So what we do is we do protected area creation with local on the ground partners. So we are kind of advisors and we are able to kind of funnel funding in through Rainforest Trust. But we work extremely closely with on the ground conservation organizations who live in the country, who are from the country, most likely most of them, almost all of them have a local partner, at least. And they actually work to create protected areas, you know, looking at things like free informed uh, consent and local communities and making sure to create kind of a very holistic process to create these protected areas so we can look at kind of a whole group of different species. Um, And it's not really looking at things of like, here's a really charismatic species that we're going to fundraise for. It's more about this is an important biodiverse area let's work with partners who are already working in this area to make this happen, but just help make their jobs a little bit easier and designate these spaces. Um, And because there's so much more focus on things like helicopter conservation, one of the big reasons why I decided to work for Rainforest Trust was because I didn't really want to take the thunder away from people who were doing the work on the ground, um, who are from those places. And what's really cool is the partnership aspect of the work was great because, you know, we have, for example, a uh, conservation organization called Herb Conservation Ghana, who is works in Ghana, from Ghana. Um, and it's really cool because we were able to help them create a amphibian protected area that covers a huge amount of area, but you know, is specifically for a uh, frog called the Togo Slippery Frog, which is really cool. Um, but it's this guy who's, his name is uh, Caleb uh, Ofiri Boatang. Um, he's a genius, he's fantastic. He's from the area and he, Basically, by working with him, we were able to create something that then had a huge effect over many different species. And I think sometimes I agree with you, like taking that macro view of how do we actually mitigate something like habitat loss has such a big impact on many different species rather than kind of just focusing on lions are cool, like let's save lions. Like let's save lions, but all the other things that impact that ecosystem, things like that. Exactly, because if you, if you protect the space, you protect the animals. God, there's there's so much in my head. There's like a billion things I could bring up because I mean, it, it is a really important critique of the conservation community. And it's not like there's anything wrong with people focusing on species because obviously sometimes when we focus on specific species, there are cascades of benefits that can occur. So mm-hmm. sometimes, sure, you have, a, and especially too, sometimes what happens is sometimes it's really just a couple of species that need the help. A lot of others are least concerned. They're doing well. The habitat's, you know, still in pretty good shape. There's just a few others that are suffering for 
whatever reason, an introduction of something or a lack of something in the habitat that's causing declines. And so sometimes you might just need to only protect a couple of species within a habitat because everybody's doing pretty good and the habitat's pretty healthy. And that does happen, but it's so rare. Usually if a habitat's in danger, it's for a lot of reasons. And the most common reasons are human wildlife conflict and habitat degradation and loss. Those are the two biggest causes. And in that case, you are seeing multiple species across the spectrum being affected by it. And sometimes it might just be regional declines. The species as a whole might be fine. And they they might just be struggling in the places where this is occurring the most or Mm -hmm. vice versa. The entire species could be having problems (laughs) because they're either restricted to a range or a specific habitat that they can't leave. And so when those specific areas are affected, suddenly the entire species is in trouble. And usually this is more common for aquatic species with terrestrial species because they do tend to have a little bit more mobility, especially if they're generalists like the serval. Right. It's not a big deal. But still, like you said, just because the serval's least concerned doesn't mean that it doesn't need some kind of protecting. There might be you know, countries and specific habitats within countries where they're not doing so well, but it's hard for us to know that because they're really hard to study. (laughs) I was going to say, like, I I would actually make the argument that if you see one species struggling, I guarantee you there's more. We just don't know about it. Especially the the prey items too. Yeah. The thing is also like, I'm thinking in terms of like entomology, um, there's so much that's data deficient. We have no idea what's going on. So, you know, you're seeing it. It's like, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine, right? Like you're seeing a species starting to struggle, but that's because there's all these other things going on that we don't even understand yet. Um, So I definitely think that even when it looks like everything's okay, there's a good argument for taking a holistic view. Yeah. And, and, and a key, point too is especially so if a serval is a generalist if I see the serval start to struggle in a space and they're a generalist which means they can kind of go for a little bit of everything there definitely is a big problem because you know they can adapt to so much it's like oh there's not a lot of birds let me eat more ground mammals not a lot of those let me eat more snakes let me eat more insects like let me eat whatever's available and if they're struggling to find those resources there's a problem (laughs) for sure yeah oh yeah, yeah those are those are all really good points and I'm glad you brought up the rainforest trust that's I always love to hear about you know especially people who work with locals because that's you know like like we've discussed already prior yeah. to the podcast you know the issue with people just dropping in and doing stuff and one not working with locals two not crediting the locals and the knowledge that they share and three yeah. potentially causing more problems than solving them sometimes when they do these yeah. things because they didn't come in and discuss things with the locals because the thing is is yes we should be protecting predators. They're just as important as the prey items in a habitat, but we do have to acknowledge that they sometimes come in conflict with people because they're predators and we eat things that they want to eat too. So <laughs> that can be a problem. Yeah. And it's, it, if we, you know, if we go in and we save the serval and suddenly, you know, maybe we protected the serval in a space where there's a whole lot of poultry farmers and suddenly a whole lot of people's poultry <laughs> is dying in this area. Yeah. We just created a problem that didn't exist in this space because we maybe weren't doing things quite right. So it is moving things around too is hard too. Like one thing that happens, which is really horrible, but also fascinating and brings up all these ethical questions is if you do things like deterrent trials, you have to be really careful not to move the conflict somewhere else. So even if something's really effective, say you have your Fox lights up, which is your little flashing light system, it scares the leopards away. I'm being like kind of really generalist about this, but then the leopards just go to the next farm which maybe didn't have as many conflict issues, but they've moved their range now. 
Yeah, you so, didn't you didn't solve the problem. You've just pushed you it on somebody else. You're so right. I think um, so. That's why you know getting a whole community involved and getting a lot of that area engaged is really important. Um, but also, it's it's important to what was really interesting when I was working in Namibia um, was I you know would of course meet with farmers before I would even think of. I tried to do it before I even did too much study design um, because they might say something that could change everything. But, you know, I was like 24. I was still learning. I, I showed up and I was like, I had my graphs and I'm like, I would like to, if you're amenable, put things here and here and here and here. And they were like, great, except that's not where the conflict is. <laughs> nope. And I was like, okay, <laughs> please tell me where it is. Um, <laughs> so even just some basic things like that. I mean, they're the ones who have the real expertise in the area. I always see scientists as, you know, we're very good at particular things. When you look at, you know, everyone that needs to make conservation work, I think of like a toolbox, right? Like you have your wrenches, you have like your rulers, you have all these different things. And, and we're a wrench and we're really good at doing what wrenches do, but that's all we're good at. We're not necessarily good at the rest of things. Um, so that's why it's really important to engage people who are, you know, good at other things um, and local communities, not only from an ethical perspective, but in terms of doing good sustainable science, if you don't engage local communities, you know, you will not have sustainable work at all. It will just fall apart. And you might actually cause more harm because then you might cause resentment by kind of barging in there and not actually listening to what the issue is. All right. And so I'm going to pause the episode right here because we really just slip into this entire conversation about conservation as a whole and I'm going to separate that half the cons uh, of our conversation about conservation into a separate episode that I'll put up this Friday so you can look out for that but as far as servals go <laughs> I wanted to go back and discuss them just briefly <laughs> since we did discuss them as well as a lot of other animals but we didn't go too in depth because there was just obviously a a lot of other things we wanted to talk about. And it's all relevant too, because even though I might be focusing on servals, sometimes impa other impacts with either humans or their dynamics in their environment or issues in conservation can all play a part in an animal's survival in general. So it's not as if the other conversations were irrelevant in any way. It just was a different way of talking about protecting servals, essentially. So just touching briefly on a few points like their environmental value, they're, they're predators and they eat small prey. It's, you know, I've discussed it in a lot of episodes how important it is for these kinds of animals to be able to help limit uh, prey populations and keep them in check. And especially because in certain areas where they live, there are a lot more small animals that exist in these spaces because... I, mean, I, I know when people think of Africa, they think of the giant megafauna, but there are a ton of little species that aren't focused on at all. I'm talking birds, reptiles, small mammals, amphibians, the insects, all that kind of stuff. Africa is a very diverse place. There's a lot of biodiversity, and in some places there's high species density. And if you get too many of certain species, it can really damage a habitat. And there's already been a lot of issues in Africa where certain habitats have been modified and are no longer the original habitat. There's natural spaces there, but the original habitat's been severely altered because of the removal or addition of certain species, whether it's plants or animals. And so 
these guys do kind of play that balancing role, especially in places where that might be an issue. Now, their social value is a little interesting, and I will just say very briefly, they can be seen in uh, zoological facilities. I saw my first serval at the Cincinnati Zoo. It was part of a presentation that included cheetahs, uh, red river hogs, uh, crested porcupine, and I forget the other animal. Red river hog, crested porcupine, the serval. Maybe it was just those three. I can't recall. But it was a really cool presentation from the Cincinnati Zoo. And they're not the only ones that have it. There are multiple zoos that have servals. They're a really attractive cat. But there's another interesting way that they have been introduced into our lives. And this, this brings up a couple of ethical dilemmas. I'm sure some people have heard of savannah cats. Savannah cats are hybrids between a, a tabby-coated cat and servals. I'm not going to open up the entire can of worms that is hybridizing wild animals with domesticated pets. It's highly immoral in, as far as I know, 100% of cases um, for a lot of reasons. I understand that some people may think it's cool to own hybridized cats and things like wolf dogs, but there are health and ethical issues with that. But again, that I mean, I could make an entire episode about that, and I'm not going to discuss all of it. But savannah cats are a way that, you know, servals have been used to help introduce a more, like, wild-like cat, specifically a very attractive coat pattern, into people's lives. I personally, if you couldn't tell, am op completely opposed to this. This is a highly problematic thing for a lot of reasons. I do encourage people to do their own research. I'm sure there's plenty of pro Savannah cat pages, but if you look hard enough, there are equally as many pages discussing the health complications, the behavioral issues, and the moral quandaries with things like Savannah cats, wolf dogs, and other hybrids of wild species and domesticated ones. It's, it's a whole thing. I'm not going too far into that. As far as economic status goes, there's really not too much to say. As Gabby kind of mentioned, they don't have a huge impact on people, so they certainly don't have like a negative impact like destroying wildlife, or not wildlife, sorry, dom uh, domesticated animals or livestock. Probably their biggest contribution here in the U.S. is, of course, in zoological facilities where they're displayed. And I guess in Africa, some of the wildlife preserves where people go on safaris looking for really uh, cool animals to see, if they by some chance get to see a serval, which is an incredibly rare treat, as Gabby points out, you know, that that can be a really big drive too. Unfortunately, though, because they are so relatively unknown, it's not very often that somebody specifically flies to an African country that has a preserve where servals may be present just to see a serval. Not saying they don't exist, because obviously Gabby exists, <laughs> and they would love to do that from, uh, from what I understand. But, you know, in general, though, that's not really what happens. So they don't, they're not a huge economic drive in any specific way. They could be, though, because if people really did spend more time, energy, and money on protecting them and trying to preserve them and also going to see these animals, you know, they could have a very large impact, as well as really any charismatic species in those spaces. The whole point of me selecting the serval is because people really do try to visit Africa for the megafauna and really overlook some of the incredible small species they have. I actually have 
a wish list of several African species I would love to see someday if I ever get to go to Africa. And uh, the servals among them. I, Any of the small cats, really. And of course, we touched on their conservation, which is currently least concern. There is, of course, uh, concern about agricultural development and things and reducing their habitats. But for the moment, they are very widespread enough and enough of a generalist that it's not really a huge concern. What's really interesting is, is I did find out after having my discussion with Gabby that there are subspecies and U.S. Fish and Wildlife actually lists one of the subspecies as endangered, which I found interesting. So the Constantina subspecies is listed as endangered by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. I'm not entirely sure why I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information about it, but it was... I'll keep looking. I'm sure the information's out there. But I, I thought that was <laughs> kind of an odd thing to do, uh, is not to list the entire species of least concern in the U- U.S. where it's not even native, but to list the specific subspecies. Anyway, so we're going to call that a wrap for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. For Gabby, they are on social media. I actually found them originally on Facebook. Or not Facebook. <laughs> Twitter. So their Twitter handle is F. L-E-U-R-Y-G-S. So it's Flurry G-S. They also have a website. So their website is flurrygs3.wixsite.com. So that's F-L-E-U-R-Y-G-S-3 dot W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com. And you can check out some of the really cool stuff uh, you can basically see their their bio, what they're about, some of their media, some of the things that they're working on. They've got a lot of really cool stuff going on. They actually participated in Black Mammalogist Week because, obviously, big cats and mammals. <laughs> they've got a lot of really cool stuff going for them, and they do some really incredible work, and they've got other exciting things coming up. So if you have a chance, go check out Gabby and give them a follow. For this episode, outside of my conversation with Gabby, I actually referenced some information from Animal Diversity Web about the serval. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. And you can also check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. I'm on social media. You can find me on The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. And you can also leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com to help support the podcast. I'm not going to go through too much of my podcast recommendations this week just because I've got a lot to do, especially since I have that second half to edit. So be on the lookout this Friday for the other half of our conservation conversation. And then next week, of course, I will have the final species of the month to discuss.